This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. You're going to hear words like Christian nationalism, like the new apostolic reformation. These are groups that you should get very, uh, very schooled on because they have a lot of power in Trump's circle. And the one thing that unites all of them, because there's many different groups orbiting Trump, but the thing that unites them as Christian nationalists, not Christians, by the way, because Christian nationalists is very different, mm-hmm. is that they believe that our rights as Americans, as all human beings, don't come from any earthly authority. They don't come from Congress. They don't come from the Supreme Court. They come from God. The problem with that is that they are determining man, men, mm-hmm. it is yeah. men, yeah. are determining what God is telling them. And in the past, that so-called natural law is, you know, it's a pillar of Catholicism, Mm -hmm. Catholicism, for instance, it's been used for good in social justice campaigns. Martin Luther King evoked it in talking about civil rights. But now you have an extremist element of conservative Christians who say that this applies specifically to issues including abortion, gay marriage, and it's going much further than that, as you see, for instance, with the ruling in Alabama this week, that judge is connected to that dominionist uh, faction. That's Heidi Prisbola of Politico on MSNBC's All In with Chris Hayes talking about Christian nationalism. Now, her definition of Christian nationalism would seem to include the founding fathers who explicitly said in one of the founding documents that we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. So how is everyone else defining Christian nationalism? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the National on Religion column for the Andrews McMeal Universal Syndicate, and for two decades he led the GetReligion.org website. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So did Politico's Heidi Prisbola, did she claim that everyone who believes in God-given inalienable rights is a so-called Christian nationalist? Yes, she did. But then she turned right back around and pulled that back in a very interesting and revealing way that I think our listeners can see if they're following any of the press coverage that uses this term. And I just did some, I don't know, can we trust Google right now in the same week as the Google photograph controversy and the AI and all that other But right now, there are currently 2.44 million references to the term Christian nationalism in Google, and there are 3,000 references to the term in current news coverage in Google News. And I predict that if you backed up about four years ago, you would not found anywhere near, anywhere near as many references to this term. And... To me, this is a classic. Here's something that we've talked many times about, you know, in these broadcasts and podcasts. What we have here is another example of good religion versus bad religion. She makes it very clear that there are good uses of claims that there are transcendent, inalienable rights that have something to do with, she even uses natural law, a term from Catholic heritage. She believes that there are clear cases like Martin Luther King, who talked 
all the time are frequently in some of his most famous addresses about God-given rights and higher moral laws and then inalienable rights that the state, meaning the American government, had denied to African Americans, which he would say was a violation of God's law, and that this was an inalienable right that the founders had extended to all, but that America was imperfectly practicing those transcendent truths, or maybe imperfect, imperfectly applying them to citizens. So if you read her whole comment, which comes from Twitter, what you basically come away with is she knows this is a bigger subject. But at the same time, she has something like a, a small movement within Christianity or even within certain forms of Protestant Christianity, this dominionist thinking. She has that linked to claims of inalienable God-given rights that come to us from Creator. Now, that's a great term from the founders, but it's one that needs to be viewed in context. She, she wants to put down particular groups of people that are surrounding Donald Trump, but at the same time, she doesn't realize that she's used language that ends up attacking a large part of America's political heritage in that wording. I would argue that in addition to be a good religion versus bad religion, our listeners should also see this as yet another example of Americans battling over the First Amendment, and specifically, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Here's where things get complex, and this is going to be a really hard discussion to handle clearly. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Why was that so important to the American founders? Well, one of the reasons is that in that era of world history, England seemed to think that it was God's unique force on earth. And as a part of being God's unique force on earth and history, that meant you should have England's approach to religion and specifically to the establishment of the Anglican Church. And that was a huge problem for Baptists and people who later would break off into all kinds of different Protestant directions and even against Catholics in England. So they came to America, and one of the first things they did was claim that the Creator has given people inalienable rights, transcendent rights, rights the state cannot take away with acts of Congress, etc., it is so ironic that they were doing that in part to protect themselves from kind of the Christian nationalism of their era, as it would have been voiced in England. So that's really complex. So we've got another battle here over what part of good liberalism is good in our heritage and what part is bad. And when you sliced her words up into the world of Twitter, Basically, all heck broke loose.
I know of genuine Christian nationalists. They wear the label proudly, and their positions really have very little to do with the concept of inalienable rights from a creator. It has more to do with eliminating the U.S. Constitution, and if they can't do that, at least the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. And then they're not in favor of democracy. They would actually prefer a dictatorship leading to a monarchy. So it sounds like the definition of Christian nationalist is getting stretched really, really thin by this political reporter. Well, and then we get into the issue of what is your definition of Christian nationalism? And as it turns out, a friend of mine, uh, Daniel Darling, who is a Southern Baptist thinker who teaches on culture, politics, and stuff like that at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, he wrote a very helpful piece a couple of days ago for USA Today in which he parses some of this. And he is, is fond of some writing that's been done by a group called NeighborlyFaith.org. And the key is they came up with like 12 different key elements that seem to be a part of what it means to say Christian nationalism. Here's the definition that NeighborlyFaith.org has on its website. And folks, prepare. This gets head-spinningly complex. Christian nationalism is a movement advancing a vision of America's past, present, and future that excludes people of non-Christian religions and non-Western religions. Christian nationalists romanticize Christianity's influence on America's development, attributing the nation's historical providence to God's special favor toward its rightful inhabitants. Some scholars identify a relationship between Christian nationalism and white nationalism. Although not inextricably bound together, the two often relate and reinforce each other throughout history. And then this goes on and on. Later in their article, and by the way, I think this is a very useful article. It comes up with a set of six statements that are defining criteria when you talk to someone. Okay, so here we go. Number one, the federal government should declare the United States as a Christian nation. The federal government should advocate Christian values. Now, you see, the Politico reporter would even say, yeah, it's okay to advocate certain Christian values, but not others. So what does that statement mean? Here comes number three. The federal government should enforce strict separation of church and state. Okay, what does that mean? Does that, for example, mean that the U.S. government shouldn't have a health care plan that forces Catholics to cover birth control, abortion, and transsexual operations in their health care plans? In other words, what is a strict separation of church and state? So there's another debated term. Number four, the federal government should allow the display of religious symbols in public spaces. I've been covering this one for decades. All religious symbols, a collection of religious symbols, just a certain religious symbol on a particular holiday. The Christmas Wars legal history there goes on and on. Number five, the success of the United States is part of God's plan. Now, we'll come back to that one in a minute. The federal government should allow prayer 
in public schools. And, of course, it should say spoken prayers in public schools. As the old saying goes, as long as there are math tests, there will be prayers in public schools. So Darling, in his article for USA Today, said that these people ended up finding that if you look at all 14 points of measurement, you end up with only 5% of Americans self-identify as Christian nationalists. And only 11% of Americans fit the category of adherence to all of the points that are in that list. He also made another interesting observation that while 60% of Christian nationalists are Republicans, 40% are either Democrats or independents. And only 17% of Republicans are adherents to Christian nationalism. If you look at all of those tenets and try to get people who believe all of them or the vast majority of them. So another Baptist, Andrew Walker, that Darling quotes says, okay, yes, Christian nationalism is a thing. But then he says, quote, convince me that your skepticism about Christian nationalism isn't just a cover for warning Christians out of politics or out of power. Convince me that Christian nationalism is not just another progressive epithet hurled against Christ conservative Christians, unquote. So I would recommend that article to people in USA Today just um, a week or two ago. And the, again, the author's name is David Darling. So we have this term. I guess what I would like journalists to do, I know we have to use the term because there are all kinds of foundations throwing thousands and thousands or even millions of dollars at news organizations to cover Christian nationalism. Because in the Trump era, this is this big, new, scary term. But here's a comparison similar to others that I've put up for listeners before. I would like journalists to be just as careful and as exacting when they use the term Christian nationalism in terms of letting the reader know what the term means, how they're defining it, and how few people it actually applies to, I'd like them to be just as careful with the term Christian nationalism as they were with the term Islamic Jihad. Because Jihad is real. There are beliefs that are attached to it, but then there's people who are radicalizing the concept of Jihad, and then there are people who are actually teaching what traditional Islamic thought has said about jihad. And the press just in the end decided we're not going to use the term at all because it's just too complex, it's too confusing, and it muddies the water. Well, maybe they should be just as careful with Christian nationalism as they were a decade or two ago with a valid historical term, which is Islamic jihad. So I'll just throw that out there. So among the other guaranteed freedoms of the First Amendment. It reads, Terry, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Those are the First Amendment freedoms. Now, I understand that journalists, most journalists aren't going to be legal scholars and they're not going to understand, say, the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, but shouldn't they have a grasp of the First Amendment? Well, not just the First Amendment, but most of the arguments about what she said have kind of come back around to Jefferson. And some people saying, well, don't forget, Jefferson wasn't one of these dangerous Christians. He was a deist or 
or a theist. Well, that's true, but that doesn't mean that he didn't think that there was a creator that had built certain laws and principles into the creation. I wrote a paper when I was in graduate school on whether Jefferson was a deist or a theist and ended up arguing that by the end of his life, he would, as we would understand it today, be a theist, certainly not a traditional or even creedal Christian in any way, but that he had kind of gone out of a machine-like deism into more of a theism. And a very well-known Baptist historian named Dr. Thomas Kidd has written a book on that. So should we expect them to know the recent history of Supreme Court case battles over the application of the First Amendment to church-state issues. It seems that the court's ability to get this right depends almost totally on the political viewpoints of the people who are throwing stones at the windows of the court. So can we ask journalists to cover both sides of those debates accurately? Yes, we can. Should we expect them to do so in an era in which their paychecks depend on keeping their readers happy? And yeah, that takes me back to the essay I wrote for the Acton Institute a number of months ago. We recently had another flashback into the New York Times battle about the Senator Cotton editorial. And one of the editors noted that in making sales pitches for the strength of the New York Times, it noted that 95% of Times readers identified themselves as Democrats or liberals, 95%. Yet those same readers wanted to view the New York Times as an independent, reliable journalism voice that wasn't biased. Well, should they do fair, accurate coverage of both sides of these church-state battles? I would say yes. At this point in our journalism history, can we expect it? Alas, I would tend to say no. You talked about handling terms with care to the point of, at some point after 9-11, the press simply yeah. stopped using the term Islamic Jihad. What about just following maybe a simple AP rule that says, we're not going to call someone a Christian nationalist unless they self-identify that As a Christian be, nationalist. Yeah, that would be great. But once again, that would even presume to some degree that there's one shared common definition of Christian nationalism. Ironically, the term fundamentalist is much more sound in terms of church history than the term Christian nationalist. I've seen lists of nine different definitions of the term that are currently being used in public discourse. That man I just quoted, Thomas Kidd, I sent him a quick appeal for help when I knew we were going to be talking about this today because he wrote a, an article for the gospelcoalition.org on the battle over some of these terms. And he noted a historian named Matthew McCullough who defined Christian nationalism, quote, an understanding of American identity and significance held by Christians wherein the nation is a central actor in the world historical purposes of the Christian God. And I immediately looked at that and saw a central actor versus the central actor. In other words, 
a lot of people might say that, yes, when you look at the history of the world as it is at this point, you could make a case that America has been a actor on behalf of certain inalienable rights and human rights in the world. Would it be accurate to say America is a Christian nation and thus the central force for God in our world? And then, of course, you're going to then get people to say, forever, forever, up until the second coming of, of Christ. And there are Christian nationalists who will believe that, that a force for inalienable rights and transcendent truth versus the nation of God, there's a lot of difference between those two claims. And to me, that's the essence of what we're arguing about here. I um, may have angered some listeners some time ago when I said that based on my church state degree, when I was studying it back there, I started with, with a wink and a nod saying America isn't a Christian nation, it's a Protestant nation. And what I meant by that was the founders were rejecting the Anglicanism of a Anglican nation of England. And one of the things they did was adapt that there are going to be a lot of different religions in America, and we've gotten more pluralistic than ever. And these religions are not going to agree with each other. These Protestant Anglicans and Methodists and Baptists and what we've now called the United Church of Christ and Congregationalists and all these other people, they're not going to agree with each other. But the founders wanted to say that still that doesn't mean there are not inalienable rights given to us by a common creator. So that complexity, that willingness to argue with each other about which of these rights are essential and what is an inalienable, that's been with us since the founding. And it's at the heart of church-state battles in the court that we follow on and on and on. I want listeners to have one other thing to think about in terms of comparing this, and this gets us back to the good Christians versus bad Christians. Some of you listeners are old enough to remember that when Barack Obama was running for president, there was this huge controversy about his pastor in Chicago, a United Church of Christ minister named Jeremiah Wright, who was quoted as saying, and this isn't a curse, he's being literal with the verb here, that God damn America for, and then he listed all these things that America was doing that was sinning against the inalienable, inexorable, transcendent truths of God, that America sometimes was acting like she is God, as he put it. So in effect, he was saying, I want God to judge America for us violating the truths of God on which we were supposed to be founded. If you read his whole context, it sounded a lot like Martin Luther King Jr. And I'm not agreeing with what Wright was saying in every case there, but here's what I wanted our listeners to remember. About the same time, everybody on the left was furious with the Reverend Pat Robertson for saying that God was judging America because through legalized abortion and the rise of gay rights and whatever, we were violating God's truths and standards 
and transcendent laws, and thus, according to Pat Robertson, God should judge America. And only one or two people caught the irony that what the right was attacking Jeremiah Wright for, whether they agreed with him or not, the basic concept that God would judge America for violating transcendent inalienable rights was exactly what the left was attacking Pat Robertson for when he said God would judge America for violating these other inalienable rights, God-given rights, etc. So I, I point those two things out simply for the irony factor that this is not new. This political hand grenade has been hurled back and forth across enemy lines in our political discourse now for quite some time. And I just wish journalists would be a lot more careful about it. And it doesn't help that in some cases we have journalism organizations accepting grants and to which they pledge to keep covering Christian nationalism more in order to help protect democracy in America. And that coverage can often end up being pretty one-sided. Terry Mattingly is senior fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the National On Religion column for the Andrews and McNeil Universal Syndicate. And for two decades, he led the GetReligion.org website. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly.